0: This is probably the first time they had to turn up the volume so I could get heard. When I was in Iowa, and uh, my office was in one building, and Sue would come in at one end of the building, and then when she reached my office, she would say, "Tommy, in Iowa, we speak softly here. So Where? lower your voice, please." But if you're talking, I hear me now. Then you okay? We're good. Yeah, good. You know, uh, last week we were we, we were talking about these inner voices that we have and how they rob us of hope. And uh, we talked mainly about shame and uh, how shame is just the game that the only winning move is to not even play it, to not even play the game. But there's another um, inner voice that we want to talk about this, this morning, and that is the inner voice of regret. Uh, and it's really, really odd because um, I think in our society today that pop culture basically says that uh, you can live a life without regret. No regrets, right? And uh, they even think that's possible. And they tell you, there's even speeches of how you can live your life with no regrets. And I did a a Google search just with quotation marks, no regrets. And I know you have a whole variety of hits, but I came up with 3 million hits on no regrets. And I started counting the songs on YouTube that were entitled No Regrets, and I quit counting after 20. Uh, including one by Robbie Williams and one by Eminem. So uh, no regrets. Um, so that's, I don't think that's possible, really. I, I think the only way that we will be able to live without regrets and come to the end of our life and say, I have no regrets, is if we had a lobotomy. Uh, because it will stay with us forever. And uh, we live with them. It's just its just a universal, u- universal problem. And the irony of this is, it is part of us. But the irony of it is, is that it actually parts. It actually points to us as worthy individuals. And yeah, it feels terrible. But really, only noble beings can feel regret. Does that make sense? that that even our feelings of inferiority point to our worth, because only noble people can feel regret. And any any creature of God who is a little lower than the angels, according to what the Bible says, that when they don't measure up to that or they're not below what we are intended to be, we can expect feelings of discomfort, conflict, remorse, and regret. It is just part of it. And that's just that's just life. I, it's, it's impossible to live, to me, without regret. In fact, people who are able to live without regret or without remorse, what do we call those people? We call them psychopaths that they, don't, they can do anything they want and not feel guilty about it, not feel guilty at all, or not feel any pain, any conflict, or anything like that. But there are still psychologists who tell us that the bad feelings that we feel about ourselves are unhealthy. And I would suggest that these bad feelings we feel about ourselves point to a deeper problem, a deeper problem that we are not below what we are created to be, that we are not filling our potential of what we can be. And I may feel like a flawed person. And the chances are, I feel like a flawed person because I'm a flawed person. And so it'd be natural to feel that way. And it's this deeper problem. And so this this remorse, yes, is a painful signal that, yes, we are failed people, but we don't measure up. And actually admitting that, that is our first step toward healing that we're gonna get, get healed. Uh, Thomas Merton, famous Franciscan monk, uh, back in the 50s, he died in the 50s, he calls this 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 uh, person that we're supposed to be, that we were created to be as our true self. That's who we're truly supposed to be. And it's this flaw that's the actual self of who we actually are. And he said that the true self is a grateful person Someone who is thankful, who, who recognizes every heartbeat, every breath, uh, that uh, the, the touch of another human flesh, that this is a gift for God. Any pleasure we have is a, is a gift from God, and we are grateful for that. So he says we are true self is a grateful person. He also says that the true self is a whole person, that we are integrated, that what you see in private and what we do and be in private is the same thing we are in public. That we value truth, that we tell the truth, that we keep our promises and we are whole, whole people. And we are also, the true self is a discerning person, is able to listen and hear, listen to the voices of others and see and watch and smell and taste. And, and we know what's really important and what's not so important. We can discern those things. And the, and the true person, the true self is also this person who's able to conduct their lives like an orchestra. That they know they have passions, but they don't get out of control. We have pleasures, but they don't become addictions. That we're able to maintain all that. And finally, he says the true self is a lover. The person who desires to love, and the person who desires to be loved. The person who is able to love others and in the true self, people have actually become better them, better selves of them because they've been loved by us. That is a lover. And if you recognize any of those qualities in yourself, that's because you were created in the image of God. And you probably recognize when you've fallen short of those qualities. And you go, yeah, we're also flawed. And regret is a and remorse is a normal thing. Regret is when we kind of live in that in that fantasy land of if only, you know? If only I had spent more time with my kids. Uh, If only I hadn't dated that night you know, Mm -hmm. if only that I had not lost my temper with my son, if only uh, I had resisted that temptation, if only I had had not quit my job, or if only I had had not become such a coward, or if only I was a better father or mother or a better brother or friend. And mothers, they're they're in a no-win situation because they regret Oh, if I if I'd taken that, if I'd worked, you know, in the family, I could have contributed to the family finances. And then, if they do get to go back to work, they say, "Oh, if only I had stayed home with my kids." So, moms, you're in a no-win situation. You will have regret. but that's the regret we live with, and it's a it like saying it's a common biblical theme that runs all the way through the Bible. I mean, it starts off with Genesis and Adam and Eve regretting their decision. Samson regrets his decision of of revealing the source of his power. And David, to me, David probably spent the last third of his life in deep regret. Regret that he ever went on top of that roof and saw Bathsheba, Regret that he didn't deal with the assault on his own daughter. The regret that he didn't deal with Absalom when he needed to or Amon when he should have. But what I want to look at this morning is probably one of the best examples of how to deal with regret, how to deal with remorse, and that's Peter. And uh, Ruth Baylitz last week read that passage, and it's the passage in, in John chapter 21, where after the resurrection, the disciples are out fishing, and Jesus has this conversation with Peter. And so, just to give us a background of what's going on, I'm not, I'm not going to read the story, but I am going to just kind of, kind of re retell the story a little bit. Most of you know the story. Peter goes into the priest uh, courtyard when he's when after Jesus was arrested, and he denies Jesus three times. He disowns him three times. They're accused of knowing him. You know, he says, "I, I disown him." And then Jesus is resurrected. They see him, but they see him off and on. And they're down by the lake, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. He literally says, I'm going fishing. And six other disciples join him. And I'm really wondering that there's more to it than I just need to keep my mind off things. I wonder if Peter is actually going back to his original career. That he's going back to his original job because he's thinking he's washed up. That Jesus can't use me anymore. I, I can't even be called his disciple, much less his fellow servant. And so he goes back to fishing. And then Jesus shows up on the shore and he calls out to them, you know, hey, have you caught anything? And they say, no. And he says, throw your net on the other side. And of course, they get this massive catch. And it dawns on Peter that it's Jesus the Lord. And so he puts on his cloak and he jumps in the river and jumps in the sea and he swims to the shore to go to Jesus. Now, if you remember, the first time Jesus did this miraculous big catch of fish, what did Peter say? He said, get away from me. I am a sinful man. But now he's had time to spend, spend three years with Jesus, and now it's just the opposite reaction. There's Jesus. I make a run for it. And when he gets there, they they kept this, this massive fish, that's just catch a fish, they, they ship that the nets don't tear. And John's very specific. He talks about Jesus, about Peter jumping in the water, passionately going to Jesus, and then dragging the net himself over to Jesus. You know, it's almost like they're trying to—he's trying to show us just how strong and how passionate Peter is, which is great. But I think Jesus is going to look for something else. He may be too strong, and so he needs to talk with him. So he brings over there, and, and Jesus cooks up some fish and bread, and he's offered. He fixes breakfast for the disciples. This is the second time he feeds people with fish and bread, which we will look at in just a minute. So now he's giving the fish and bread for the second time. And then he says to Peter, Peter, let's go for a walk. And he goes, sure, let's go for a walk. So he calls Peter aside and he says, Simon, son of John. Notice he doesn't call him Peter. He goes back and calls him the name that he was when he was first called. Simon, son of John. It's almost like, okay, Peter, we need to reboot here. Let's start over. So he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And there's a lot of discussion of what he meant by that. Do you love me more than your fishing tackle? Do you love me more than your career? It could also mean, do you love me more than the disciples love me? But I think what Jesus is asking is, do you love me more than you love, more than those guys love me? Why do I think that? Because the last time Peter made these kind of statements, right before the crucifixion, he was claiming that. He was claiming, Jesus, I'm with you all the way. I don't know about these other guys, but I'm with you. I'm going to die with you. I'm going to die for you. I'll give my life for you. But it was all bravado. It was all bluster. And Peter doesn't respond by saying, of course I love you more than these guys. He says, no, I love you. I love Jesus. The and then Jesus asked him a second time, and then finally a third time. And the third time, Peter finally addresses the authority of Jesus. And John tells us that he was deep in grief. He was deep in remorse and regret. And I think that Jesus was asking him those things three times because he wanted Peter to do some serious soul searching. You need to look into your heart. Yes, it matches the three times you denied Jesus, but I think there's just a balance here. And I think what Jesus was getting at is you need to deliver and search your soul before you make any rash statements. Before you make any statements, think about it. And Peter says, Jesus, you know, you know me. You know me better than anybody else. You know me better than I know myself. And in spite of my failure, in spite of my debacle, in spite of my my disowning you, I love you. And Jesus says, good enough. That's what I'm looking for. And those three times he said, feed my sheep, you know, take care of the lambs, protect the flock. What Jesus is asking to do is you do what the good shepherd does. You imitate the good shepherd. That's what I want you to do. And what I see here, several things about dealing with regret, is first of all, like I said before, it is universal. If you have no regret and never feel remorse, you might see a therapist, you could be a sociopath. Yeah. Having regret is proof that you have a soul. Okay, so when you have regret and remorse, just remember, it's proof that I have a soul. That I was created in the image of God. The second thing is own it. Own it. It's funny how not everything is, is impeded in all four Gospels. But Jesus, I mean, a Peter's statement of, yeah, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to go everything for you. That's in every single one of the Gospels. Must be important. And Peter finally has to say, I own it. Jesus never mentions the elephant in the room, does he? He never says, yeah, remember when you said that? You know, he never mentions that. But Peter finally gets it. In spite of my failure, in spite of my remorse, in spite of my regret. I love you. I love you. And then we need to grow from it. We need to search our souls. We need to search for wisdom and we grow from it. And I think that's what Peter was doing, was searching his soul, and it came down to one issue, and that is loving the Savior. One thing, loving Jesus. Paul says, without it, it's all in vain. Whatever you're doing is just ridiculous. It's just a waste of time if you don't love Jesus. It's all down on that. One thing. And then he says, with the healed relationship, Now get on with it. Get on with it. You're imitating me now. Copy the Good Shepherd. And you got to remember that probably when John wrote this, Peter was already dead. Most likely. And so Peter was probably known throughout this primitive church already as this man who imitated Jesus. He writes about it in his own letters. He was a man who did what the good shepherd did. There was no rule here, no authoritarianism, no hierarchy. He just cared for the sheep. He just fed the lambs. He just protected the flock. And that was Peter's reputation. He just got on with it. So that's what we do with remorse. We, we recognize that it's universal. We all have it. Every one of us has it. You own it. You grow from it. And then you get on with it. You get on with it, obeying and copying the Savior. That's it. This story has bad news. And the bad news is that Peter disowned Jesus three times. The good news is Jesus never disowned Peter. And the bad news is we may disown Jesus by words, actions, who we are, sometimes because we are flawed. But know that Jesus never disowns us. He is faithful. So when we are dealing with regret, and we are are burdened with remorse, and we want to restore that relationship with Jesus, know that there's no room for commending yourself, okay? There's no room for saying, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go, to the, I'll go to the cross with you, Jesus. There's no room for commending yourself, bragging about yourself, no room for blustering, that kind of thing. But at the same time, there's no room for condemnation either. There's no room to be self-condemning. And if you remember the story, when Jesus was talking about Peter's death, what did Peter say? He goes, what about this guy, John? And would it be, what did Jesus say? don't worry about them. When you're dealing with res- restoration, remorse, and and and, and reconciliation with, with the Savior, there's no room for comparison either. There's no room for co- commending yourself. There's no room for condemning yourself. Recognize the flaw, recognize the regret, but don't obsess over it. And there's no room for comparison. Because the minute we commend ourselves, the minute we condemn ourselves, the minute we compare ourselves is the minute we take our, light, our eyes off Jesus. The minute we move away from him and the focus is on us. And he's just saying, love me. That's it. We're going to um, celebrate communion this morning together by giving it a nice of nice and, and um, encouraging to do that together. Remember I said there were two meals in in, uh, the two times that Jesus fed people, bread and fish. Those are the only two meals in the book of John. He mentions sort of the Passover, but John's focus is on the washing of the feet. But for John, he mentions this meal twice. Here with the disciples, and then once in John chapter 6, when he fed the multitude with fishes and loaves. And that led right into the discourse where he said, I am the bread of life. You've taken me. And what he's saying is, you take me in. You must take in the crucified and exalted Savior. Because I am the bread of life. And of course, a lot of people couldn't handle that. No, God meets us in the temple. He doesn't meet us in you. And Jesus said, I am the temple. My body is the temple. And so when he shares the food and shares the bread, he is embodying us to declare, I am with you. He's invited us to declare, I am taking you in into my body, literally. And I am with you. I am declaring that where you go, I go. Because Peter, famous Peter, asked him, Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to leave too? And what did Peter say? Where am I going to go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I have no place else to go. And so when we take communion, we are saying that. I have no place else to go. And the other reason we take communion, is a declaration that we are one body. That there's a declaration of unity here. So we take communion It is a rebuttal of this hyper-individualism that plagues our society today. It is a rebuttal to that mindset. It is a restorative response that we are taking in the body of Christ. And it's a declaration of our unity and it's a declaration of giving our regrets and our remorse to the one person who knows us better than anyone else. So that's what I want to keep in mind this morning, is that if we take communion, then we take some time to give our regrets, our remorse to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know me better than anybody. And you know that I like you. But boy, am I flawed. And I want you to restore me. I want you to reconcile me to yourself. So I'm just going to pray for a few minutes here. And you sit just a a minute in in silence to give you a chance to sort of deal with those things you regret and let him take care of it. He will never disown you. And then I'm going to ask Kendra and Ed to come back up. And we're going to be singing Amazing Grace. And uh, we'll hand out the communion elements while they're singing. And um, I want you to hold them. And then we'll take it together. So let's pray a few minutes in silence. Father, you know we carry so much with us. We carry regret and remorse with us. Father, I ask you to teach us to follow Peter's example and to cling to you. You said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And so Father, this morning we are committing our lives to you to live the way you lived, to pursue justice, to pursue generosity, to pursue peace. But we recognize that is the only good way to live is to follow you. And so, Father, we cling to you. We cling to the Savior. And we thank you for never disowning us. In the name of Jesus, i